0: You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Before we get started here, let me just share a little disclaimer. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the medical uses of cannabis. Now, all of the information I present to you in this podcast in general is for education and entertainment purposes only and should definitely not be considered medical advice. Please never make decisions about your health based on anything you hear me or any other podcast host talk about. I'm simply sharing information that I've collected from talking with professionals with relevant experience or from research studies that are available out there that have been published, but I'm not a doctor, and you should always get your medical advice from a licensed healthcare professional. Now with that out of the way, let's move on.
1: Her daughter Harper Grace hasn't been able to receive marijuana extract oil for treatment of her rare form of epilepsy. A 2014 law named for Harper Grace nixed the oil from the state's banned substance list. Others, including Governor Phil Bryant, say there's a lack of scientific evidence providing the benefits of marijuana treatment outweighing any risk.
0: In the previous episode of the podcast, we began exploring the concept of cannabis as medicine. We looked at many of the ways in which cannabis has been used as a medicine in the past, and some of the ways in which cannabis-based pharmaceuticals are being used as medicines today. Now, picking up where we left off, I wanted to explore the ways in which medical claims are derived. How do we determine that something's a medicine, and what results are clinicians seeing in their patients that are using cannabis as a medicine? this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. As we covered in the previous episode, there are a lot of medical claims swirling around cannabis. If you go into just about any cannabis dispensary, you're likely to see posters on the wall indicating the myriad of different chemicals in cannabis linked with their supposed effects. However, many times these kinds of charts are built off of very simple preclinical research data that may not really have any relevance in a real-life cannabis use scenario. So how are medical claims derived about cannabis? Well, there are several different forms of medical research that are considered to have varying degrees of quality. On one end of the spectrum, there are anecdotal reports, and these are basically eyewitness testimonies from a single person or maybe a small group of people. And, you know, in these situations, there are no controlled variables. This is just simply someone reporting what they experienced, what they saw, what they felt, and that sort of thing. Up from that, you have case studies, usually written by a professional describing an incident in detail and giving their professional opinion. Moving along, there are observational studies where a healthcare professional might watch a patient engage in an activity and then record the outcomes. Now, on the other far end of the spectrum is the gold standard of the randomized Randomized controlled trial. Now, before a drug ever sees a randomized clinical trial, typically when that drug's being developed, the first way it's studied is through something called in vitro research. In vitro studies are laboratory studies performed in test tubes or petri dishes. In vitro literally means in glass.
2: Basically, yeah. I mean, when you're studying, like when you're doing drug development, you you tend to look for a certain kind of activity that the drug is like. Well, let's just take THC as an example.
0: This is Justin fashetic Justin is a natural products researcher that studies the activity of the chemical constituents of plants, including cannabis.
2: THC interacts with the cannabinoid one receptor, which is mostly in your brain, and it also interacts with the cannabinoid two receptor, which is in the peripheral nervous system as well as like immune cells and. You know, there's, there's more to it than that, but, um you know, so like if you're looking for a compound that interacts with CB1 receptor, you would start with mostly probably an in-vitro assay. So that just basically means you have some kind of test tube that you have some kind of, uh, you know, you can put the receptor on a certain type of cell or there's all kinds of different ways of doing in-vitro experiments. but. Um, generally you're looking for some kind of specific biological activity. So you either have a receptor in a tube that and you can measure in various ways of how compounds interact with it. Do they interact with it strongly, do they interact with it mildly or at all? Um, and you know, you, you know, this also applies to cell, like, like if you're looking for an anti-cancer drug, you would normally start by growing cancer cells in like a petri dish and then applying different compounds to it and seeing if they kill them. And, you know, that's a big, you know, that's usually the starting point of a lot of this stuff. Um, Or you have some plant that you already know has medicinal properties for, like, historical reasons, and then you go try to figure out why. But, yeah, so, you know, that's in vitro means, like, in a test tube, basically.
0: Then moving on from in vitro studies, there are in vivo studies, which are studies in living animals.
2: And then as you move into an in vivo system, that would be in, like, a test organism, so a mouse or... Eventually, a person. If, if it's uh, you know clinical drug development,
0: but there are limitations to each of these types of studies, and the results of an in vitro study or even an in vivo animal study cannot always be easily extrapolated to real life human clinical situations.
2: A lot of times, you see people like quoting things about different cannabinoids, different terpenes from kind of very basic in vitro kind of research, like oh this terpene has anti-inflammatory properties in this assay. And then they just quote it as if that means they have anti-inflammatory properties in general. Um, and you, you can't, re- you know, that's, there's, a, there's a reason drug development is, takes a long time and it's complicated because you usually start with these very simple systems and move into much more complicated systems, like a person versus one cell or one receptor.
0: I had a conversation with cellular and molecular biologist Dr. Anthony Smith about this issue regarding the limitations of interpreting in vitro studies.
3: A lot of science papers are either built on or in some cases supported by what we call cell culture research. And so cultured cells, what I mean by that is that... um, you know, we can get bits of tissue from different animals, um, mm-hmm. humans included, and essentially break them apart from <laughs> their tissue mass and grow them in flat-bottomed bottles with synthetic blood, if you will. And so, there's all kinds of different mammalian cell lines uh, that we call them that are, you know, used for all sorts of research that relate to drugs, disease, environmental control. Detoxication, et cetera. And these are very important models, but I think when you, when you see research, um, if it's built on or even supported by cell culture experiments, you know keep that in mind. If it's important enough, uh, a study will use several different cell line types mm-hmm. and look for, you know, some theme um, in, in whatever metabolism they're, they're looking for in those models. Um, sometimes, uh, you'll see clinical work. So like actual, you know, physiology or, um, you know, clinical outcomes, um, that maybe produce a theory that it relates to a particular tissue and signal. Um, and so they will try to support that hypothesis by testing that signal uh, mm-hmm. again in a cell culture model, you know, but the thing about cell culture models is you know, until you, um, in your research mind or your research repertoire really built up a large library, if you will, of understanding, I, I, it's it's not a good idea, I think, to make lay conclusions that are based on a, yeah. a single observation of a cell culture line.
0: A lot of cannabis research has, up to a point, been primarily in vitro and in vivo rodent studies. But very few research projects with cannabis have crossed into the world of placebo-controlled, double-blind clinical trials with large patient populations. And many politicians and regulatory bodies continue to claim that because of this lack of clinical trial data with herbal cannabis or cannabis products, that they cannot be deemed safe or a viable medicine for any condition. Now let's break this phrase down. The placebo-controlled double-blind clinical trial. Now, placebo-controlled refers to the fact that a compound is given to some of the patients in a trial, and this compound is intended to have absolutely no effect. Sometimes this might just be sugar, you know, something like that. In general, it's expected that if something is a candidate to be considered a medicine, it needs to perform better than a placebo. Now, it can be difficult to adequately utilize a placebo in a THC-rich cannabis study. Because THC has such distinct effects, it's pretty difficult to fool people into thinking they got the drug when they actually didn't. Now, this kind of situation is referred to as incomplete blinding, because the patients are not truly blinded to whether they received the drug or not. The gold standard for clinical trials is for a study to be double-blind. Now, the phrase double-blind refers to the idea that both the clinician performing the study and the patients participating in the study are both blind to whether they received the research drug or the placebo. This is important because there are various biases that can enter a study if the physician knows who's had the placebo or not, and likewise, patients may react differently in a study if they know they're receiving a placebo. Although, some modern research is actually beginning to call that idea into question, and has shown that patients can actually respond really well even if they know that something's a placebo. But we don't have time to get into that today. Next, large sample sizes are required in order to understand whether the results of a clinical trial are actually representative of a much larger population. A study that only examines the response of a couple dozen or even a couple hundred people is considered to be really, really small, and can't actually represent the hundreds of millions of people living in the United States, much less the billions of people living in the world. Finally, there's also the issue of repeatability that's worth mentioning here. Even if a research study is placebo-controlled and is double-blinded with a good sample size, it's still really important that that study be replicated by another set of researchers in another location with a different population of people. Research findings are much, much more robust when they've been repeated. When trying to interpret medical research, there's also the issue of deciphering what the studies are trying to measure, how they're measuring it, and whether the significant effects that are identified in a study are actually relevant in a real-life clinical setting. This is the issue of statistical significance versus clinical significance. Statistical significance is a measure of the likelihood that a result is not due to pure chance, whereas clinical significance is a measure of the practical significance of a treatment in a clinical setting. Basically, just because a research study determines that something exhibits an effect technically and that that effect is statistically significant when compared to chance, it doesn't actually mean that that effect's going to end up being significant in any practical sense when someone consumes that product. There's another similar issue also facing drug development and medical research, and that's this battle between efficacy research and effectiveness research.
4: You know, for me, I feel like we're having, I think we're at sort of the end of the research arc of the revolution of sort of efficacy research. Mm. It's still being promoted and pushed because it's a great way to sell a drug. You know, if if I'll just map, you know, the difference between efficacy research and effectiveness research Mm. is that effectiveness really looks at therapy or a therapeutic approach clinical significance clinical significance like yeah yeah was was i able to affect a positive change in a patient population using in a technique or or you know a way of formulation or something (laughs) like that doesn't require this efficacy model which says is this molecule effective for this condition Mm -hmm. and that's a great way to sell a drug you know, and there are cases where we can still really use that. You know, especially especially right. in cancer. Yeah. I, you know, there are some places where targeting a specific, you know, tar you know, molecular receptor or a pathway can be very powerful in a, in a disease process like cancer that gets out of control really easily. But I want to find out, you know, how is cannabis effective? And how is plant medicine effective for different conditions when applied using some principles? You know, Mm -hmm. like using some basic uh, you know approaches to medicine. And so, I want to see a divergence in the in, in how we prove. Something's value mm-hmm. as a medicine, and yeah. I feel like we're stuck in a place where the money and the cash grab is driving us to keep using this archaic model that was really, you know, a model set up in the you know 30s and 40s mm-hmm. of you know to, to prove out these pharmaceutical medicines and that they were more they were powerful because they were going to direct function. Right. We want to be in control, mm-hmm. and in the emergency room, heck yeah, I want to I want I want to be in control in the emergency room. You know, exactly. someone someone comes it's in acute, with acute like... chest pain, man, let's get them on nitroglycerin. Let's throw you know. These He's got, got an ST wave, you know, elevation. We've got, you know, this person's having a cardiac event. We need to get them taken care of. We need some single molecules to block some pathways Mm -hmm. and keep them alive. Awesome. But I, you know, what I, where I see cannabis and where I see plant medicine is in day to day health. Mm -hmm. And I don't, we don't need to use that model to understand how those things affect our, you know, our health and disease, you know? And so I, you know, I don't know how to make that bridge, but I'm pushing for my own work and my own you know search for meaning and search for what am i here to do i want to try to help proliferate a a way of approaching medicine a way of of mm-hmm. proving that looking at a person's lab work combining it with looking at their mm-hmm. Chinese medicine yeah. diagnosis, and then using natural materials, maybe some drugs too if they need them, but whatever, but a combination, but that that approach would be effective for patients. Mm-hmm. And how do we move from the efficacy of that single molecule, single molecule to, to a more, what I would call, a more useful and pragmatic you know, right. research approach?
0: So we've established that there are a lot of different ways to study medicine, and the results of some of these studies are not necessarily straightforward to interpret.
5: It's always tough. Uh... For me, I'm 67, so, you know, my basic uh, science training was like 45 years ago, and things change radically. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm like a lot of people, and uh, when, when I've got a new journal article that I think has uh, pertinence to what I'm investigating, I may need to read it three times yep, yep. to try and get it straight. So, uh, none, none of this stuff is simple. Uh, There's a problem trying to translate this into lay terms Mm -hmm. because uh, the foundation is so broad uh, in the endocannabinoid system and the details uh, can be so extensive. Mm -hmm. Um, It it really defies simple explanations. And uh, to be fair, that makes it very tough for the average physician to be able to grab a hold of this when... Their schedule has them seeing a patient every 15 yep. minutes. It's just not amenable to providing a good education to the patient about anything, let alone something so complex as medical treatment with cannabis or the, the endocannabinoid system.
0: Now, all of these nuanced details about research are important when it comes to the development of cannabis-based pharmaceuticals. To get a drug approved as a medicine in the United States, at least, a company has to present lots of data that shows that that drug, compared to a placebo, will provide an intended therapeutic effect for a particular condition or set of conditions. And that takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of money.
5: In most respects, the development of a cannabis-based medicine as a pharmaceutical is the same for anything else. But cannabis is a botanical, a plant-based medicine. There's still a common misconception out there that you can't make a pharmaceutical from a plant, Mm -hmm. but it has been done. Um, And even though Sativex isn't available uh, in this country, it is approved in 30 other Mm -hmm. countries, and it passed the chemistry, manufacturing, and control and the safety Mm -hmm. uh,
0: signals. Sativex, or nabixamols as it's also known, is a particularly interesting drug to focus our attention on. Sativex is a mouth spray that consists of a standardized cannabis extract with a 1-to-1 ratio of CBD to THC. Now, unlike Epidiolex, which is often criticized for being an isolated cannabinoid drug like Marinol, Sativex consists of a wide diversity of plant compounds extracted from cannabis. This means that the clinical data on Sativex is likely to be far more relevant when thinking about the therapeutic potential of herbal cannabis or cannabis extracts than research on isolated THC, like Marinol, or isolated CBD, like Epidiolex. Um,
5: But basically, what's involved um, is you have to take your preparation and show that it's safe through toxicology. This means giving large amounts, unfortunately, to rats and dogs and seeing what happens. Um, then uh, it's put through phase one in which uh, normal people get, are exposed to the drug in varying amounts and you see how long it lasts in the, the body, in the blood, mm-hmm. and uh, what the reactions of people are, monitoring the side effects, if any. Then uh, it goes to phase two. In this, moderate numbers of patients with a specific disease are given the drug. And again, you're looking for efficacy, safety, and then the other factor is consistency. Mm -hmm. Can you show that your drug, if it's a botanical, it's gonna contain many ingredients. Mm -hmm. You have to show um, consistency, Uh, of each component within very tight tolerances over the duration of the drug development program. The final step is phase three, in which large numbers of people with the disease are given uh, the medicine, again, to show safety, um, efficacy, and consistency. At a point where a drug has passed all those steps, uh, it's FDA approved, and then it takes about a year to um, designate a uh, schedule, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's a drug that has psychoactive effects, it has to be put in a schedule um, that uh, describes what its drug abuse liability is, whether it has addictive potential, um, how often a physician can uh, prescribe it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then uh, label is developed and it goes on the market. So we're talking about generally from start to finish a seven to 10 year proposition that will cost anywhere between 700 million and 1.2 billion dollars. Easy, right? Right, yeah, Yeah, (laughs) no problem. (laughs) But um, So that's one aspect of cannabis as medicine. However, as we're seeing now in this country, cannabidiol has been available in various preparations on another level, where people can access it without uh, prescription, um, so in the future, there are going to be other cannabis based supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, these should be also subject to safety and efficacy uh, issues as yeah. well as labeling and we 've got a final uh, level or echelon of activity, which would be someone grows cannabis and may use it in a medical context mm-hmm. so uh, There are these three different ways of getting cannabis medicine. I think people make a mistake when they think that one level can eliminate the others. Mm -hmm. Much as the government thought that uh, Marinol synthetic (laughs) THC would uh, reduce or eliminate uh, the issue of medical cannabis. uh, It never happened. It never will happen. Similarly, we've got some counterculture people that... Uh, would just like to free the herb, so (laughs) to speak, and and forget about these other areas of commerce. God forbid uh, (laughs) a company would uh, make money uh, on something that uh, is God-given. But again, those are extremes of philosophy, I think.
0: Now, Dr. Rousseau makes a great point here. Just because cannabinoid and cannabis-based pharmaceuticals are being developed it doesn't necessarily mean that herbal cannabis and the use of cannabis extracts is going away anytime soon. And in fact, a lot of times people tend to prefer herbal cannabis or the use of cannabis extracts over these available pharmaceuticals, for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's efficacy-related, but sometimes it's cost-related too. Pharmaceuticals can be extremely expensive, and when you can just grow a plant at home and make your own extract and get the same or better efficacy... Sometimes it's a little hard to justify going the pharmaceutical route. However, pharmaceuticals tend to be very standardized and consistent batch-to-batch. So it's possible that trying to treat a medical condition with homegrown cannabis or cannabis products obtained from either the black market or even legal markets and dispensaries uh, may not provide the same consistent outcomes because the product chemistries will be a little different batch-to-batch. Unfortunately, there's really not much research available right now regarding herbal cannabis or cannabis extracts, and this is for multiple reasons. One reason is that research tends to happen with products that can be patented and that a company can make money on, so there's not a huge financial incentive to do the really expensive research on herbal cannabis or unstandardized cannabis extracts. Another issue is that cannabis flower and extracts are very diverse and inconsistent in their chemistry batch to batch. However, despite all of these issues, clinicians around the U.S. are noticing striking results in many patients using cannabis products.
6: My largest population is children with autism. Oh, okay. Probably hands down. Um a lot of autoimmune, a lot of um, you know, just inflammatory pain syndromes. Mm-hmm. Um we've seen I've seen it work beautifully for opioid reduction.
0: That's Jana Champagne, a registered nurse who over the past several years has focused her attention almost exclusively on cannabis.
6: But you know, there's there's just so many things that it can be utilized for. And and it was so funny. I had a, a a consultation with a retired pharmacist, mm. and you could tell he was questioning the science, and I was sticking to the research. Yeah, and, well,
0: that's good. Yeah. And
6: um, and he was saying, "Jen, I just don't understand how one thing can be good for so many different conditions." Mm-hmm. And this is the shift that needs to happen. You know, pharmacists and doctors are used to pharmaceuticals that have. You know, one or two active ingredients, right? Or we have the cannabis plant that has upwards of five hundred therapeutic thousands. components that yeah. we know of. Mm-hmm. We're finding more all the time. Yeah, and so this explains, you know, the way that it works is to to promote balance in the body. The underlying cause of every chronic illness is underlying imbalances. So in a general way, you can see mm-hmm. how it's going to come in and in and, and kind of promote wellness overall. So it's very different. Um, and, and, you know, cancer, we've seen cancer patients that are in stage four, on hospice, not eating. Of course, we encourage patients to please reach out to us before cannabis is their last resort. But, you know, we have seen some miraculous recoveries from cancer. You know, yeah. patients who graduated from hospice, um, you know, on hospice, we, wow. you know, we typically talk about, well, it's try to promote appetite so at least you're not starving to death from the cancer and the cachexia piece but you know we always warn you know if if you're really intent on letting go and passing this could extend your life (laughs) and you know one of the best cases was lung cancer patient and on hospice starving to death took cannabis just to eat Mm -hmm. and um Six seven years later, he's still alive and well and cancer free. Wow! So wow. we do have those instances, <laughs> but once again, it's not to encourage people that oh wow, well, they can try everything else first and then bring in the cannabis because we also know by research the cannabis improves the efficacy of chemotherapy. Right, it's protective against the effects of radiation and against the You know the symptoms that we often see a side effect of chemotherapy where they lose their hunger they they can't eat they don't have the energy to get well so it just works on so many different levels for people you know in my own case the reason i became a cannabis nurse was my own health failure back in 2012 and uh, it was immune related and uh, i was very very sick and non-functional and on disability i was Critical care nurse doing acute care 12 hours a day, working my yeah. graduate program, homeschooling my daughter with autism. I mean, there were some other factors <laughs> wow. like stress yeah. involved. Oh my gosh. But, yeah. um, but you know, I, I turned to cannabis as, a, as an alternative to opioid pain medications after totaling my car. And um, knowing as a nurse, you've seen these long-term opioid patients and what they go through and their gut stops working and they have tubes everywhere and they're either awake and screaming pain or completely sedated Mm -hmm. and out and nothing in between. And, you know, that's not anything anyone would... Would wish for. Yeah. So, but in addition to, to managing my pain, the cannabis actually started to rebuild my immune system. Wow. And now I'm healthy, fairly healthy and uh, functional anyway. I mean, yeah. I was non functional, yeah. bed bound for a long time. People don't understand how sick I was. I mean, I was 20 pounds lighter than I am now. Wow. I was yeah. very, very ill. Chronic renal failure and just all my systems were were not handling the stress very
0: well. Well, yeah, it's definitely so. something I wouldn't I wouldn't guess by looking at you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, that, that it was, yeah, most got people to that wouldn't. Yeah, point.
6: yeah, and then and then it went on to help my daughter with autism. A couple of years later, she went into autism puberty crisis, high level behaviors. You know, as a homeschooling mom, out of home placement was not something I ever would have considered, but it was almost mandated because mm-hmm. of safety issues. Wow. And cannabis spared her that. So now I actually have a plan. And in the next year, she's 17 now and working on, um, on a model of cannabis care homes for autism here in Oregon.
7: It's closer to a, a nutritional supplement mm-hmm. than I feel than it is a medicine at this point because we don't understand it. This
0: is Dr. James Taylor, a pain physician working in North Carolina. Ever since hemp became federally legal in the United States, he's been working with his patients to understand how hemp extracts and CBD particularly might be a tool to help treat chronic pain.
7: It. we know it's modulating and changing your endocannabinoid system but modulating and changing it in what ways right, i can't right. answer that question yep, yet yep. Uh, so a lot of this is just hit or miss uh, and for me uh, it being a physician that's dealing with the opioid crisis <clears throat> i don't have a lot to lose right 60,000 americans are dying every year yep. uh, we need a hail mary uh, in order for this to you know for our country to change and so for me, it, it felt good bringing something like this into the, this practice of medicine uh, because we had nothing to lose. Uh, it is positively affecting our patients. We are able to reduce their dependency on narcotics, and you know we are slowly getting there.
0: All of this positive benefit that some of these healthcare professionals are seeing does not mean that cannabis is without risks. For an in-depth review of the risks associated with cannabis use. I recommend listening to the first three episodes of the season where we explored the question, is cannabis safe? Cannabis can interact with other medications, and it's not for every person or every condition.
4: <sighs> cannabis has a role to play, and I just I want to help find what that role is. Mm-hmm. And I want it to find a place where it's well understood for what it can do mm-hmm. and what it can't do. What its strengths are and what its weaknesses are. It sounds like the next silver bullet to me, which doesn't exist, (laughs) right? right? You know, cancer is an incredibly complex disease. People are complex organisms. How can one thing do all of that? Of course, as time came to bear, I saw that a lot of people died. Literally, you know, and I, I would advise them, hey, you know, I think you need to, you know, really consider some oncological therapy, we need to, you know, you're losing the momentum here. And it's a momentum game with cancer. It's trying to gain enough of its own resource generation and using yep. what you have faster than you can maintain your own resource to build yourself. And there's this crazy struggle there. And if cancer starts winning that battle it's really hard to turn it around even with mm-hmm. really powerful plant medicine or any kind of right. thing you know sometimes you just need you know you need a, you know an intervention like a targeted therapy an immunotherapy a chemotherapy even radiation in some outside you know mm-hmm. cases or surgery you know to, to yeah. debulk it and then go after it and you know I'm I'm very selective and very specific about my choices especially when it's concerning the life of someone and then their mm-hmm. family and how it affects their community you know it's a big deal to make a choice and yeah. so you know I, I got really put off by the fact that there was basically one person promoting, you know, sort of like this path to curing cancer, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not gonna say any names, but it was like the idea that this person cured their cancer. Well, they cured basal cell carcinoma, a skin cancer. That's basically just, you just cut it out and remove it. I can put, you know, blood root and turmeric on it and just have it come out. You know, Mm -hmm. I've just seen so many of those go away, but they're taking that and then interpreting it as, Oh, cannabis cures cancer. And it's a very revolutionary thought. It's a very rebellious thought. Mm -hmm. And I I feel it too. I really want there to be, you know, a cure for cancer. Right. But there's no cure for cancer. You know, it's not, you can't cure cancer like in one, you know, it's like there's, it's an incredibly complex thing and I would love to elaborate on at some point, mm-hmm. you know, all my kind of like seven different sort of metaphors of cancer, as I call them, mm-hmm. how it relates to as within, so without and how yeah. cancer manifests and then how we have to address it. And of course, prevention. I mean, you know, that's right. what we can do. You know, they, we used to talk about an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure yep. in cancer. My, my adage is an ounce of prevention is worth a ton of cure. Yeah. Yeah. Because the cure is
0: so challenging damaging and
4: challenging oh my god you know like you know people it's a a long story but you know swinging back around i think that that was the thing that concerned me the most about cannabis was that wow people are going to take this medicine and they they're going to fill their desire and their need Mm -hmm. to have that hope for the cure for all of our all of what ails us i will say also that i think with with the um inhaled cannabis Mm -hmm. especially vaporized yeah i really don't worry about drug interactions um with people you know especially if you've got a person who's going through chemotherapy and they're suffering from nausea and appetite loss right you know like the benefits to vaporized cannabis in that context, it's, it's the best medicine that I've ever experienced. And I've talking about dozens to maybe hundreds of patients that have, that I've guided them through yeah. that with. And it's remarkable that they're able to actually take their therapy because the, 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 the medicine of the cannabis allows them to overcome the symptoms caused by the medication, right. but the medication right. is actually doing something good. It's killing their cancer, mm-hmm. you know? And, and of course there's more, it's, it's a complex story about that, but, um, you know, I think in those contexts, whatever we don't know, I think it's okay, yeah. you know, and I've seen a lot of people do that and come through with flying colors, you know.
0: Well, a big part of that is like, if you can deal with a the nausea, then you can eat more, you can have more strength, your body's able to do its own work to protect healthy cells from the damaging effects of things like radiation or chemotherapy. And and so the the likelihood that you'll have a positive outcome with that conventional um, therapy for cancer treatment, um, increases. And I think, I think that's a very, um, valuable tool. And, I, you know, back in the eighties, researchers were catching on to that. That's why Marinol exists on the market was to treat, um, cancer related nausea. Of course, turns out it doesn't work as well as herbal <laughs> cannabis So uh, inferior. has its own side effects and, and issues. Um, but, you know, that's why, you know, one of the first pharmaceutical, Drugs from cannabis got approved was for that that indication. So despite some of the miraculous claims about cannabis, it's not a cure-all. And some of the claims made by advocates are a little overhyped. However, other clinicians I spoke with also shared additional stories of the successes of the medical use of cannabis in their patients, which begs a question just how much evidence is required before cannabis or any other natural product can be accepted as an effective medicine. We've already discussed that the gold standard of medical research is considered to be the randomized controlled trial, but it's an extremely expensive process to get something through the drug approval process in the United States. Because this process is so expensive, It's pretty rare for a company to spend the millions, if not billions, of dollars required to study a natural product alone that they can't even end up patenting and capitalize on later. Additionally, natural products are challenging to standardize and control, which really doesn't lend itself well to the modern medical research schemes. We've also covered the fact that cannabis has an extraordinarily long track record with humans, going back nearly 5,000 years or more. Through that time, records of varying degrees of quality have been kept about the medical use and toxicity of cannabis for thousands of years. The historical record indicates that cannabis has been considered a potent medicine all the way up until the 1930s when cannabis prohibition began. And we haven't even really talked about the history of cannabis prohibition, but let me just say, the start of cannabis prohibition was not something based in science and many medical associations were actually unhappy when access to cannabis was prohibited in the 1930s. Now, modern research has confirmed that, in fact, many of the traditional medical uses of cannabis are actually well-founded, and compared to many foods and drugs, cannabis is actually pretty safe. Where we lack clinical research, we have a host of anecdotal reports, case studies, and observational studies documenting the medical efficacy of cannabis. And while, yes, these types of research may be considered lower quality, at a point, these reports become pretty overwhelming in their results. And yet, today in 2019 in the United States, people are still struggling to get legal access to medical cannabis. While many of you may already be familiar with the little girl named Charlotte Figgy that brought nationwide attention to the treatment of CBD-rich cannabis for seizures in children in a famous CNN special with Dr. Sanjay Gupta called Weed, you may be less familiar with another little girl that's fighting the same fight in my home state of Mississippi, and her name is Harper Grace. Harper Grace is a little girl that also suffers from seizures, similar to that we saw in Charlotte, Her parents found that CBD-rich cannabis was an effective treatment, and in 2014, after a lot of advocacy from Harper Grace's parents and friends and supporters, the state actually legalized CBD oil, but in a very limited capacity for limited conditions in a very limited selection of patients. Since the law passed, which is actually named after Harper Grace, that little girl still has not been able to get access to CBD treatment. And now her parents are fighting for statewide medical marijuana legalization for Mississippi in 2020.
1: ACTIVIST Ashley DUVALL REGISTERED THE MEDICAL MARIJUANA 2020 INITIATIVE LAST YEAR AND HER DAUGHTER HARPER GRACE HASN'T BEEN ABLE TO RECEIVE MARIJUANA EXTRACT OIL FOR TREATMENT OF HER RARE FORM OF EPILEPSY. A 2014 LAW NAMED FOR HARPER GRACE nicks THE OIL FROM THE STATE'S BANNED SUBSTANCE LIST. OTHERS INCLUDING GOVERNOR PHIL BRYANT SAY THERE'S A LACK OF SCIENTIFIC EVIDENCE PROVIDING THE BENEFITS OF MARIJUANA TREATMENT OUTWEIGHING ANY RISK.
0: This issue is especially poignant considering the country's only federally sanctioned cannabis research and development laboratory is actually located at the University of Mississippi. So, let's review what we've learned. Cannabis has been used as a medicine for a lot of different medical conditions for thousands of years. Up until the early 1940s, cannabis was even part of the U.S. Pharmacopeia until Prohibition began in the late 30s. Medical research comes in a lot of forms, and we really have to be careful not to conflate the statistical significance of an effect that's measured in a research study with the clinical significance of an effect that's measured in a therapeutic setting. Just because something might seem statistically significant doesn't mean that's going to translate to any meaningful effect when someone's trying to use it to treat something that's ailing them. We can't assume anything based on a single research result. Research findings always need to be replicated by a different group of researchers. The clinical research that is currently available about cannabis indicates that it could hold promise for the treatment of conditions like nausea, loss of appetite, chronic pain, and spasticity. There are case studies and uncontrolled clinical research that indicates that cannabis could be useful for a number of other conditions like autism, ADHD, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and immune system-related disorders. While there are numerous case studies and observational reports documenting cannabis' efficacy treating conditions like these in patients, it's difficult to interpret that data and extrapolate it to a much larger population, at least yet. Clinicians working with patients using cannabis are seeing positive effects in general, and at times even profound results. But cannabis is not a silver bullet, it's not a cure-all, and it's not for every person or every condition. But it is a tool in the clinical tool chest that some people respond very positively to. There's a lot we don't know. Cannabis comes in a lot of forms. There are many different chemical profiles of cannabis, each with its own therapeutic index. We're just scratching the surface, really, with understanding cannabis, and we still have a long way to go. But, we do know that cannabis is very safe when consumed responsibly. It is impossible to lethally overdose on cannabis, and many of the adverse health risks of cannabis can be minimized by utilizing oral forms of cannabis at low dosages. For more information about the safety of cannabis, check out episodes 1 through 3, where we explore this topic at length. So, how is cannabis a medicine? Well, simply put... A lot of ways. While yes some of the claims about cannabis as a medicine are overhyped, a lot of them aren't. And a lot of people are finding relief from very serious conditions that they're having to live with every day through the use of cannabis. Today it seems like the rationale for restricting access to cannabis or cannabis products often comes down to an argument around safety and a lack of research. Harper Grace is fighting for access to CBD oil because lawmakers in Mississippi feel that cannabis needs to be studied more to understand its risks. The FDA has stated that they're unlikely to allow CBD in foods because they want to better understand the potential risks. This issue with CBD safety in particular is really interesting, especially considering the World Health Organization in 2018 already issued a report claiming that, and I quote, CBD is generally well tolerated with a good safety profile. To date, there is no evidence of any public health related problems associated with the use of pure CBD. Now, despite this determination, the FDA backs their stance by citing a recent rodent study that claimed to have identified the liver damaging effects of CBD. However, as we covered in episode one of the podcast, This study was a rodent study that utilized massive, unrealistic doses of CBD before uncovering the damaging effects on the liver. At doses more typical of what anyone might encounter in real life, these liver damage effects were not observed. Very recently, Democratic presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden stated that he believed that there needed to be more research into the risks of cannabis particularly as a gateway drug, before he would consider legalizing the plant federally. Yet, as we also covered in episode one of this podcast, an administrative law judge in the U.S. back in 1988 made a formal statement attesting to the safety profile of cannabis and the need to reschedule it to a more lenient drug schedule. Hell, if you think about it, over the past several decades, starting in, I guess, maybe around the the, the 50s or 60s, Most of the research into cannabis has been focused on trying to find the risks and damaging effects. That kind of research has been done. So, what do you think? Do we need more research into the safety of cannabis before we legalize nationwide? How much evidence is enough before people are allowed open legal access to cannabis for medical purposes around the world? Personally, I was left with a few questions. One... Why are cannabis and its cannabinoids still Schedule I drugs in the United States? It's clear cannabis has therapeutic applications in certain contexts. Sure, cannabis can be abused, but so can many other things which are totally legal. Many lawmakers claim we need more research, but how will that research ever take place if cannabis remains a Schedule I drug? Ultimately, the legal status of cannabis seems to be hurting people far more than the plant ever could. 2. Given the safety profile of cannabis and its potential efficacy, contrasted with the sometimes harsh effects of some other medications, why is cannabis often used as a last resort treatment option for patients, rather than one of the early options? And three, how much of the benefit that users claim they're getting from cannabis is actually related to its therapeutic activity, and how much might just be placebo? And if some of cannabis' therapeutic effects are placebo effects, does that matter if people are finding relief and the treatment is relatively benign? So far we've been looking at the various ways cannabis is used as a medicine, and how it's been used as a medicine throughout history. But what do cannabinoids and other chemicals in cannabis actually do in the body to elicit these medicinal effects? Join me in our next episode as we take our fantastic voyage into the human body to understand how cannabis works. In the next episode, we'll begin to explore the question, what is the endocannabinoid system? Until next time, I'm your host, Jason Wilson. Thanks so much for tuning in, and take it easy special thanks to our guests that were so gracious in spending time with me for interviews that helped construct not just this episode but other episodes throughout the season to check out the citations for this episode and there are plenty you can check out the show notes by visiting cacpodcast.com if you want to learn more about cannabis you can check out the curious about cannabis book available now on amazon.com and other online book retailers if you like what we're doing here and want to support the show please consider supporting us by liking and sharing this episode with your friends and family you can also choose to support us on patreon at patreon.com natural enterprises where you can get access to the full-length guest interviews behind the scenes content and a lot more you can also connect with curious about cannabis on social media on instagram facebook twitter and youtube
7: acquired, as to whether or not it is a gateway drug, it's, it's a debate, and I want a lot more before I legalize it nationally, I want to make sure we know a lot more about the science behind it. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for for the vice president, he has sworn me into my office as a hero. This week I hear him literally say
4: that I don't think we should legalize marijuana, I, I, I I thought you might have been high when you said it. (laughs) because,
7: Because marijuana, marijuana, marijuana in our country is already legal for privileged people.